Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're going to look at the significance and aftermath of South Carolina and Super Tuesday, asking basic questions about the disconnect between the enthusiasm and support for progressive policies and the Sanders and, let's say, Warren to a lesser degree uh, campaigns and candidates, and then the reality of people voting for Biden. Was it fear, motivated by the constant drum of the corporate media that Bernie's not electable, but Biden is? We're going to examine this with our guest today, Matthew Karp, and then Adolph Reed. So Matt Karp is well known to Jacobin readers as a contributing editor, but he's also an associate associate professor of history at Princeton, an historian of the U.S. Civil War era, and published a book with Harvard in 2016 called This Vast Southern Empire Slaveholders at the Helm of American Foreign Policy. But today we're going to talk to Matt about his insights on what happened on Super Tuesday that so changed the electoral dynamic. And, well, Welcome, Matt, to Jacobin Radio. Good to be here. Yeah. Thanks for uh, for being with me. Um, the basic question, of course, is what happened. You say in your recent article in Jacobin that's called Bernie Sanders can still win in the nomination and the presidency. And I'm clinging to that, Matt. Um, <laughs> but you say that Sanders appeared ready to annihilate all three of his Democratic primary opponents on Super Tuesday. And you also say that today the baseless fabric of this vision has dissolved, leaving only the grim spectacle of Joe Biden as the new Democratic frontrunner ascending the stage in Los Angeles and confusing his wife with his sister. So what happened? Uh, yeah, it was yeah, a rough night. It called for a little bit of uh, a little <laughs> bit of Shakespeare there uh, into thin air. You know, we are the stuff we are such stuff as dreams are made on and so on. It felt like it was a collapsing vision. I mean, I think. First, to begin with the kind of emotional journey of, uh, of the Bernie supporter in the last week, it's been so wild because it really did seem, you know, and there was a lot of evidence to suggest that Super Tuesday was going to be uh, a wipeout, um, you know, uh, victory for Sanders after Nevada. Uh, and even, the, even a loss in South Carolina, you know, according to polls, didn't, didn't seem to be necessarily enough, even if it gave Biden a bump. To, to, to realign the race. Um, you know, these were strong states for Sanders and Texas, California, et cetera. Um, and that just, compl- it, 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 it did feel like, I mean, we're still sifting through this California vote, and maybe we can come back to that. Yes, and definitely. the dynamics of how, you know, if California were the first state to report and reported in full, would we have a totally different narrative this night? That's uh, something for narratologists, I guess, to, to work out. But but clearly the result in places like Texas and Massachusetts and Minnesota was incredibly disappointing. And the race did seem to turn on a dime in that period between South Carolina and um, that, that, that the Saturday South Carolina primary and the Tuesday vote. Um, uh, and it, to me, um, it, 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 you know, the, 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 the most significant thing that happened was, you know, these two uh, two significant candidates, Pete Buttigieg and uh, Amy Klobuchar, had together had about 15 percent of the vote still in national polls, um, you know, on a dime withdrew, even though Buttigieg, you know, had actually performed reasonably well in the first four uh, races, um, but but completely and, and had been, you know, fighting with uh, jockeying with Biden in all four of those races, and you know, taking shots at him and so on, but completely withdrew through their their support decisively to Biden, joined by, you know, other Democratic, you know, celebrities, Beto O'Rourke and Harry Reid and 
Tammy Duckworth and other people. And it clearly just sent up the kind of bat signal to nervous Democratic voters. I wouldn't even necessarily say moderate voters who were necessarily ideologically moderate, who were looking for a moderate, which was the kind of talking point <laughs> going into Super Tuesday. I don't think that's that's quite how, you know, I don't think that's According to, you know, political science and electoral history, that doesn't seem to be quite how voters actually process things. But um, they were looking, I think, I think there were a lot of number, a number of voters who were in between Bernie, Biden, Buttigieg, Bloomberg, looking for the strongest horse to beat Trump, looking for clarity and safety in a, uh, in a very confusing election. And Bernie had momentum. He was picking up momentum. He seemed for a brief moment like he might be that choice. And I think the, constel- the the combination of this bad defeat in South Carolina, which we can talk about, but m- even more than that, this kind of clear kind of programming, in a sense, from um, from the Democratic establishment said, OK, no, our guy is Biden. Biden is the choice. And if you want clarity and unity and security, you go with Biden. And so not only bringing the 15 percent of the vote that went to those other two candidates, basically scooping it right into Biden's camp. Clearly, he, he unpacked a lot of the Bloomberg support, which was very soft um, and was mostly a kind of an electability vote anyway. Um, and that was decisive. Um, you know, he pulled and he pulled votes from Bernie, too. There were there were clearly some voters who had been telling pollsters they were going to vote for Bernie right up until um, uh, Saturday. And then they switched to Biden, too. So I'm not sure it was so much about the moderates just won um, as um, Biden emerged through a, a some you know powerful stagecraft um, as the as the kind of consensus safe choice. Uh, whether he is or not is another question. Right. Well, let's go back for a second because you've yeah. you've really laid that out extremely well, Matt Carp. And I want to go back a little bit to just sort of you know I guess track it in a way because you know after Nevada. Everything was, you know, the, Sanders smashing victory there on a really radical program with a very high voter turnout seemed to detonate a, a real working class wave in which huge numbers of trade unionists, women, Latinos, Native Americans and gays were in the lead. And it seemed as if that was going to repeat itself. In fact, everybody thought that was the case, or at least in the Sanders and perhaps even the Warren, um, you know, uh, campaigns that that the same would be true on Super Tuesday. Sanders thought he would win California, Texas and elsewhere. We're going to come back to California. And you say in that article, and that's why I want to go back to it, is that you call that a baseless fabric. And you just laid out part of that. But I want to go back slightly if you can we don't have to do it a lot but just to his win in nevada and how that could be different or this coming together of the elements that you just described where voters even if they were pro his program wanted a safer choice after nevada how do you account for that (laughs) yeah no well to first a couple things first on the baseless fabric i think was not necessarily sanders's um uh working class coalition so much as the idea that he would gallop through the primary almost without um, uh, without 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 conflict, you know, after right. Super Tuesday, yeah. I think that was the kind of sense that, uh, that 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 some of us had that it was such a smashing victory um, that it really that and the, and the opposition was so confused and those confusions seemed so untractable because Biden had seemed so self evidently weak and underperforming everywhere, unable to generate any momentum in the first three states. Um, 
that uh, that they, they, they wouldn't be able to play the Biden card. And meanwhile, Buttigieg had equally severe limitations. And Bloomberg um, was the most beatable of all three, probably in a one-on-one with Bernie. So yeah. anyway, it, it seemed like that 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 was the, the dream, that Bernie was just going to sort of ride roughshod over the field. Not so much that that, Ber- that, the, that the central message of the Sanders campaign um, uh, you know, you know, turning out younger, um, diverse working class voters is I, I don't think that has been conclusively laid like sort of um, uh, that vision has been completely shattered by Super Tuesday. I just want to be clear about what I was saying. But mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, I mean, on Nevada, well, I mean, obviously, we didn't get in Nevada in Texas. There are a couple reasons, I think, for I mean, for one, Nevada's a caucus. So as much as yeah. you want to we want to talk about big turnout and, you know, the exciting, you know, dramatic events on the strip and so on with a with the culinary workers defying, you know, the union administration and voting for Bernie, et cetera. Um, uh, you know, we're, it's still a lower turnout overall. It's a lower, it's, it's sort of, it's a more activist oriented, um, kind of turnout. It's, it's hard to sort of generalize from a caucus. Now, what happened in terms of youth turnout or working class, you know, you know, pro Bernie turnout on Super Tuesday? It's, it's a picture that I think we're still in a way, partly because of California, um, being so slow to report, we're still unpacking and we don't have all the evidence yet. Um, but I think the first thing to say clearly is, uh, two points on this, is San- it's not the case, despite some of the, I think, misleading early reporting from the t- New York Times and other places, that youth turnout plummeted or sank or anything like that. What happened, it seems like, yes, the share of the youth electorate, according to exit polls, which are not a very good judge of this thing, by the way, according to the experts, but mm-hmm. that's all the data that everyone's basing this on right now. According to exit polls, the share of turnout 18 to 29 or even 18 to 44 uh, sh- shrank. But because in most states, um, like Virginia, like North Carolina, like Texas, like Tennessee, overall turnout was actually considerably higher the the raw number of young people who voted, if you just do quick back of the envelope math in a place like Texas, um, actually, you know, had a raw increase. So it's not the case that like young people came out in 2016 and didn't come out in 2020. Many more did come out, but they were swamped by a much larger turnout of older voters, especially voters over 65. That's what happened, you know, really dramatically in, in, in Virginia, um, but also in, in again in Texas and Tennessee, North Carolina. The, the composition of the electorate, it seems, um, it got larger and it got older. And you had a lot of, um, a, a lot of, I think, and there are a couple, you know, we could speculate on a couple of reasons for this. We saw some of this in New Hampshire, too. Probably a considerable amount of like former Republicans without a re- significant Republican primary voting in open primary states for in the Democratic primary for mm-hmm. uh, a centrist candidate for Biden primarily, um, maybe for Bloomberg in some places. And then um, and I think also um, uh, just a sort of a, a more mobilized um, older electorate that um, is deter- what, what decided sort of in some ways at the last minute that Biden was the best chance to do this. Uh, and I think that's the bigger story, the older voter turnout surge, is if, if you're trying to be fair about it, than the sort of explosion of youth, than, than, than the idea of youth turnout, um, uh, you know, really sinking. Yeah, and I think that we probably should just go there, but I want to just say kind of as a footnote yeah. that California seemed to be matching that Nevada, even though that was a caucus, California is a primary and a very large yeah. one. Um, and uh, Gustavo Arellano, who's a reporter here now, uh, described the huge enthusiasm for Sanders' Latino base in California, and it extended everywhere. 
Except, of course, or perhaps, you know, in that powerful phalanx of the Latino politicians across the state and in Sacramento. So for the base, let's say, but not the leadership so much. But on the other hand, you know, as you know, we do not yet have all the results in California. And there were significant problems, especially in Los Angeles County with the rollout of this new, very confusing voter, uh, voter, you know, they, they had fewer polling places, long lines, the machines weren't equipped, the volunteers weren't properly trained. It wasn't nefarious, but it was pretty bad. You know? And people who waited in line, people I know who are close to me for more than an hour, uh, you know, gave up and tried to go to another polling place, couldn't even get into the parking lots. You know, it was it was pretty messy. Yeah. And I think and I think the early indications we'll see um, are that, you know, turnout was very, yeah, it was very high in California. It was high and strong and pro-Bernie in, mm-hmm. in, um, in, in, you know, particularly the, you know, heavily Latino areas in L.A. and L.A. County, some of the congressional districts there, overwhelmingly that, you know, some of them which had gone for Hillary in 2016, um, you know, uh, went overwhelmingly for Bernie uh, this time. And, and there, we don't know, we still don't really know what the, what the, what the raw vote totals are going to come in. But my guess is when all is said and done, which we probably won't fi- figure this out for another month or two. Oh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have a picture of, um, you know, th- that, that it, especially in some of these Latino areas, um, the, the, the Nevada picture was uh, duplicated again for, for Sanders. Um, but I think probably also, I would bet, um, uh, you, you would see some of the same Virginia story in California, too. Yeah. You know, California yeah. contains multitudes. And I bet you're going to see in some of the San Francisco suburbs and in some of the San Diego and, and L.A. suburbs, um, a lot of older vote, a lot of older voters who came out and um, voted for Biden. So, um, and you know, some we're, probably we're younger up, ones who were frightened. Will happen. Yeah. So let's let's go there to um, because there you have in Virginia you have a pretty ideal, as you say, instantiation of the alliance that won it for Biden across Super Tuesday, and it was pretty impressive. Uh, the turnout was quite high, larger than in 2016. So let's talk a little bit about the well-off suburbanites and African-Americans in Virginia and, you know, that that seem to uh, constitute the core of Biden's base looking at Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I hear you, I hear you, you said you're going to have Adolf Reed on uh, later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's going to uh, go into it. But, okay. And he'll get into South Carolina. I think right, in particular. That's, I know he and Willie Leggett have a piece on that. So, and so I could talk, I can give you a little, um, my little two cent, you know, right. maybe half a cent riff on, <laughs> on, on black voters in this election. But first, to start with the suburbanites. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I mean, to be honest, I think Virginia was always going to be a really tough state for Sanders in retrospect. Um, I mean, and, and, but I think Virginia, according to my theory of what happened in those 72 hours, it, it, it's a kind of perfect case for, um, for, uh, for, for this as a kind of reflex uh, action on the part of a lot of Democratic voters. I think Virginia, it's not, it, you know, it's, the, it's literally the closest Super Tuesday state to Washington. You know, the population of the, the Democratic population is heavily clustered in, you know, Northern Virginia in particular. Uh, and, and Biden won those Northern Virginia counties by, you know, enormous margins. Um, uh, you know, these are voters who, some, yeah, some of them are just ideologically moderate. I think in Virginia, you probably have a lot of those. But there are also a lot of voters who are connected to, you know, highly informed kind of political news followers mm-hmm. who, um, you know, really um, determined uh, to 
to you know, who, whose priority above all is defeating Donald Trump and in some ways even, I think, ending the Democratic primary and the confusion and the frustration associated with it uh, as quickly as possible and kind of finding safety and clarity and simplicity where there was complexity and division and kind of serious arguments about the future of the party. None of that, I think, matters to a lot of these voters. And you could call that impulse moderate or conservative, if you will, on the part of voters. I think, I, but I, I think, I, 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 and maybe it is, but I think it's wrong to call it ideologically um, uh, kind of conservative, given that even in Virginia, voters overwhelmingly supported uh, Medicare, according these same voters supported Medicare, you know, a government insurance plan instead of private insurance. That's they fascinating. Green New Deal. I want you to go further into um, that. Can I just? I'm just interrupting. Yeah, yeah, I'm just interrupting for a minute because I think yeah. that's really fascinating. Because yeah. essentially, what you're saying, Matt Carp, is that the population is tired of the uh, very interesting and substantial, but you know, I guess uh, a kind of distraction to the main thing, which is the these debates over policy and healthcare and university and indebtedness, the economy, all the things that we really think that people care about, and they just want to get it over with so we can fight Donald Trump. Is that what you're saying? I think. Well, I mean, look, this is where Virginia, I think, is a is a is a. Hmm. I mean, this this connects to some earlier arguments. Yeah, I've made. But I think it says something about what kind of party the Democratic Party is and is becoming. It's it's to some extent, you know, Virginia, you know, it's actually funny, given the salience of Virginia and Nevada in this election. After 2018, I wanted to write a piece on the two futures for the Democratic Party, um, you know, Nevada versus Virginia. Those were literally the kind of the test cases. I never ended up coming together. But in Nevada, both were both were states that went kind of purple to blue uh, in the post-Trump era. And but in Nevada, um, you know, it was primarily driven by working class voters, strong unions, um, you know, uh, Latino voters, et cetera, pushing, turning Nevada blue. In Virginia, it was primarily driven by um, white suburbanites, you know, who, who, you know, kind of took over Virginia state politics in this period. And I think in that part of the coalition, which is now, frankly, a huge and significant part of the Democratic voting bloc, I think it is true that, that, that material issues like debt and Medicare and health care are not as salient as a kind of, if you will, a psychological issue with um, removing this hated incumbent who doesn't actually really threaten them in any material way, um, but, uh, but, but represents a kind of uh, insult to um, you know, their sense of sort of order and uh, 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 you know, sort of American values in a kind of almost intangible way. And I think those voters... Um, you know, it's not that they're actually even necessarily implacably hostile to uh, progressive reform, but they're not, or, or to sort of a Bernie Sanders style material politics. But it's clear that that's not what's motivating them. And in this case, uh, I, I don't think it was. I mean, Biden doesn't even have a, a a platform, right? I mean, his platform is you know <laughs> restore the soul of America, and he's. I think those are the voters that he's most speaking to. And it says something about what the you know it, it raises hard questions about what kind of what kind of, um, you know, the class coalition that makes up the Democratic Party. But maybe that's another story. No, I think that's really an important story because basically, you know, it's sort of, it's like what Clyburn said to Biden, pivot from policy to heart. You know, in other words, just they don't want to be Republican or they don't want to be Trump's party. So just vote for the Democrats and we'll get to the other issues later if we do it all. And it's and I think that, you know, that's really interesting that you're laying that out about the layer in Virginia, you know, the well-off suburbanites or maybe not even so well-off, but at least, um, you know, these are the ones that went to Biden in a large margin. And um, 
Was that the kind of message you think that Democratic candidates used to appeal to them there? That I mean, Biden- yeah, I mean, that's the story of, I think, it. I mean, look, there were some cool things that happened in Virginia after 2017. Um, you know, Lee Carter was elected. There were a couple other, you know, the sort of socialist in, uh, you know, out of uh, Leesburg or whatever. Um, but, you know, the Virginia State House went blue and then... Uh, you know, there was another good election in Virginia in 2019 for the Democrats. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we saw in Virginia state politics, I don't know if you tracked that story where there was, you know, it's like, okay, Democrats finally control, you know, uh, the Virginia government, unified mm-hmm. control of Virginia government for the first time since, you know, it was a very different Democratic Party in power. And they, you know, you know, the, the first thing they did was basically refuse to, you know, repeal right to work legislation in Virginia because it's not that kind of Democratic Party. It's not a Democratic Party of of unions, of working people, in a sense, even of a kind of um, any kind of really distri- even mildly redistributive politics. It's a Democratic Party that is uh, whose whose heart is elsewhere. Uh, and um, I think those those voters, um, those voters really punish Bernie Sanders on uh, on, on Super Tuesday in Virginia. I guess I would say one other thing about the psychology of it, uh-huh. about where Bernie was facing, um, you know, that in retrospect, well, I don't want to say, I'm not, not doing a writing a epitaph of the campaign here at all, uh, but but in, retros- in retrospect, I think um, there's something about these, about taking on an incumbent president that that creates this dynamic that's very different from even how it was in 2016 um where trump kind of looms over everything and he sets the agenda and it's much more powerful and uh it's a bit much more powerful strategy in intra-primary politics to gear everything around opposition to that and nothing else i think you saw that in you, you've seen that in other historical examples of um, parties trying to oust an incumbent, gravitating towards a sort of safe choice who, whose whole premise is really nothing about the future of what the party represents and everything about a here's a guy that can beat um, Donald Trump. So, you know, Mitt Romney in 2012, John Kerry in 2004, Bob Dole in 96. None of those candidates spoke to the Republican or Democratic bases in really powerful ways, but they were able to pitch themselves as the kind of safe, reliable choice who can take on a hated president and beat him. Um, and the establishment of, of both parties kind of sold them that way. And it worked, uh, although, of course, all three of those candidates lost. So let's move to Sanders now. And I mean, his I'd like to know what you know so far. And obviously, we don't have all the data, especially out of Super Tuesday. But what's happened to the new forces that Sanders was counting on to mobilize and expand the electorate and allow him to win by backing his program? And that strategy seemed pretty straightforward and based on an understanding of the objective condition that especially young people, um, you know, face. I see it all the time with my students who are in their, you know, I would say vast majority pro-Bernie. But maybe they had been the people that, you know, were thought have to have been outside of the electoral electorate, rather, but now are mobilizable when they finally get a candidate who speaks to their interests. And Sanders, you know, really made that the heart of his campaign, that he's been very clear about both parties' political interests defined by their neoliberalism, which is the word that we haven't used, but their politics, their support, like you just said, they didn't even think about getting rid of right-to-work laws, but their support for Wall Street and and high-tech and, you know, capitalist interests in the media 
um, and benefiting from globalization, but they haven't been able to appeal to the working class people, but also, you know, young people who are essentially working class. So uh, who are now for the first time, I guess, looking at a a more radical version of the New Deal and liking it. So I guess we're, it's going to take us a long time to understand why that hasn't just, you know, gone as we thought it would, at least in Super Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I probably just come back to uh, we need to get more, we need to get better data about, you know, the the, the sort of raw numbers of the electorate. Uh, and I think probably the story will be that, uh, that, that youth turnout increased, not as much as Bernie was hoping for, um, which is, which is, which we probably have to admit, except perhaps in California. Uh-huh. Um, but 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 it wasn't that young people dropped the ball. It was that it was that you had uh, just a a, a a surge of an old, of, of, a, of an older, more cautious, more nervous, um, perhaps less materially invested in in some cases at least uh, electorate that 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 swooped in and and voted for Biden. But I think in terms of the promise of the Sanders coalition kind of going forward. Um, I mean, there are some rays of hope, uh, I think, if, you know, in the exit polls. I mean, one thing, um, you know, we, we talk sort of obsessively about um, we really focus on 18 to 29 year old voters, you know, college students or people just out of college or people who didn't go to college and are, you know, or have part, some college and are, you know, student debt, et cetera. But, you know, Bernie actually and in 2016, he, he cleaned up with those voters. But mostly he he struggled, especially in, in southern states and states that he lost. He lost every other age group to Hillary Clinton. He lost 30-year-olds. He lost 40-year-olds. This time around, um, in, in Sanders's, even in Sanders's sort of mediocre states, he won um, in, in states where he lost overall. He won 30, 30 to 40-year-old voter, voters. And in, in the states that he did well, he won 40 to 50-year-old voters. So I think, you know, part of that is just the sa- these same voters getting a little bit older. Um, um, but I think there's, there's evidence that, uh, slowly, very slowly, especially given, you know, um, you know, how many older voters there are. They also all got older and kept voting, too. Um, but very slowly, you're seeing some of these ideas, you could say, not to be a demographic determinist, but you're seeing some of the support for these ideas kind of migrate up the food chain, uh, the kind of the uh, migrate up the kind of um, uh, the 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 demographic food chain in terms of age uh, and 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 broader support not enough obviously not enough to win um, uh, this primary and and the premise of turning out untold numbers of new voters um, uh, that didn't that clearly did not happen you know maybe in California but some kind of youth quake didn't that 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 didn't happen I mean I think he did well but. Um, uh, but he did. You know, it's hard to change the game uh, of the electorate in, in one or even two cycles. He did win over the youth voters that came out. They came out strongly. They were just overwhelmed by uh, a much larger number of, of older voters. I think what you said is really important, uh, Matt, and that is that, you know, if, if we're talking about a kind of generational change, it's hard to, like, get it in four years or even eight years. Yeah. And that's really yeah. hard for some of us to accept. And I have to say yeah. that the morning after, when I saw your article headline uh, in um, in Jacobin, it was kind of like the heart and heartless world. You know, Bernie Sanders can still <laughs> win the nomination and the presidency. And you say, there's no use in sugarcoating the 
scale, but, you know, you said there's still a pathway for victory. So I want to just, you know, in our last, yeah. you know, moments, talk about that. And, and there's two things that I'm hearing from a lot of people, and I wanted to ask you is, one, uh, uh, should, that Bernie should move to the center and, you know, toward pragmatism, or that he should turn things around by attacking Biden and his record, which has been literally not good for blacks, not good for women, and certainly not good for the working class. Yeah, I mean, I think he can do both. I think there's there's truth in both of those um, in both of those critiques. Um, but I, I, it's a sort of a question of how you do it. I mean, look, I'm not a political consultant, yeah. but I do think I do think that there's there are already emerging critiques, and there probably will only get louder and sharper, uh, you know, as time moves forward. That especially after Nevada, this is already do, being uh, doing revisionist history. That, that the Sanders campaign perhaps was still kind of constituating itself and presenting itself as this kind of insurgent rebel outsider force and perhaps didn't do quite enough to sort of, um, you know, put Bernie in that soft, cozy sweater and <laughs> convince those same nervous Democrats uh, who just want to beat Trump that he was the best bet for them, too, that he was not just he wasn't a protest leader. He was a president. That he was that he was that, you know, actually what he wanted, this happens to be true, are the things that most Democrats want, you know, health care, jobs, education, uh, family leave, child care, basic material things that everyone can agree on that the Democratic Party from FDR onward ostensibly is supported, uh, but has failed to deliver. And he's fought for those things. That's what he stands for. Nothing beyond that um, or n- not not too much beyond that, you know, and that he could have. Not uh, this is why they call it pivoting, not moving, not moving to the center, but kind of pivoting, showing his face to those voters, too, and saying, hey, look, um, I'm not so scary. What I want is stuff that this party already ostensibly wants, and I can do it without sort of presenting myself as, um, you know, a vanguard revolutionary. And I think, you know, some of that could involve kind of old fashioned retail politics with trying to get some, some a few more of those progressive Democrat endorsements. I think we got Bill de Blasio after Nevada, which is which was and I thought I actually thought for a brief moment that there would be a few more dominoes that might fall mm-hmm. um, from the, even the Congressional Progressive Caucus, place like that. So that didn't happen. I don't know. And we don't know enough whether they made those efforts and they were rebuffed. And, you know, the, obviously he, this is a guy who spent his whole life uh, as an outsider to the establishment. And that's his main virtue, too. So we can't uh, rewrite that and pretend otherwise. Um, and I don't know. So we don't know enough about the, the, the backroom story there. But I think going forward, some of that, 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 that same sort of presentation um, uh, is, is what he really needs to do. Because this, I, I think what Tuesday showed is that this is an electorate that doesn't necessarily just want the best, this is what I said in the article, doesn't necessarily just want the best choice, they want the safest choice. And hitting Biden's record, um, not, I wouldn't necessarily just come out guns a-blazing and try to nail him with every demographic group and say, oh, but he was bad to Anita Hill. And he was, I mean, because it's true, there's so much to choose from. Yeah. Actually, I think the message can get lost. Um, and it can just be like, look at this guy, he's a mess on every single issue, and we can get him here, and look, look at him on the crime bill here, and look at him on, uh, you know, and he touches women, and, you know, da, 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 all this other stuff. I actually think the, the mood of the voters right now is not going to be the, the voters that he needs, he needs, especially in, you know, in places like Michigan and then on, uh, in Illinois afterwards. Are, I think, uh, for me, the, the kind of the, the attacks that he needs to make are, are really about the same bread and butter economic issues, Social Security and free trade. Biden's disastrous record supporting those which have cost Americans jobs, um, make him an unreliable defender of 
the things that Democrats claim to defend uh, in a, the next fiscal crisis. Who's to, how, how do we have any belief that Joe Biden wouldn't bargain away, um, you know, uh, <laughs> do, do entitlement reform uh, when that's what he's been doing for 40 years? And when there's the next trade negotiations, how do we know that he really cares about these workers? So I, th- I think those are the those are the attacks that he wants to make. Um, and, but I think he needs to make them from a position of I'm a better Democrat than Joe. I know that's a hard sell. Some people are probably, you know, puking into their uh, speakers. <laughs> on hearing that because the whole point of Bernie is that he's an outsider and the Democratic establishment has been screwing him. But I think he can actually make that case, given that he is a he is a better Franklin Roosevelt Democrat than Joe Biden. For and sure. I think that that's a stronger case to make than. I'm going to lead a political revolution and, um, you know, uh, save the world in, 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 in a few years. So There's, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, you can't do a 180, but I think you can lean in a direction. And I hope he leans in that direction. And you end your article, Matt Carp, saying that he's not only the better choice, uh, that he's the safer choice. And you just mentioned that. But yeah. I think that, you know, after what happened on Super Tuesday, the thought of what Trump is going to do to Biden is truly scary. And I, you know, and and in all the, you know, one-on-one matchups that, you know, the polls have done, uh, Bernie beats Trump. And so, you know, now that's been shaken and somehow with the corporate media and everybody else going on and on about uh, his unelectability and Biden's electability, do you think that this is one tack that Bernie should stress? I mean, this, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, he's kind of, I think you can brandish the polls. That's effective. I think I think that's part of the that's part of the picture. And he's especially he can make the case. I've tried to make this case too that he, he's especially effective at turning out the kind of um, you know you know the 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 voters who in key in the, those key sort of Rust Belt states didn't show up in 2016. He he you know that that in in order to beat Trump you know Clinton the experience of Hillary Clinton showed that you can't just be the anti-Trump you have to have something positive that motivates people and uh the positive thing that motivates people is the democratic platform of Franklin Roosevelt that's right. the that that you know that's that's the argument that he can make and he can show the polls but i think it it can't just be a kind of um look at the numbers um kind of case i think he's got to um i think he's and this, this is where it's not impossible because given where joe biden is these days um you know, uh, there is a shakiness to him. There is a, there are questions about whether he can actually speak extemporaneously in, in a coherent way these days. And I think, um, you know, maybe that's not even important to beat Donald Trump. Who knows? Maybe we're in a totally different world and it, that doesn't matter anymore. But, um, oh my God. presumably, um, we want a president who can, we want both a candidate and a president who can, uh, you know, think cogently and um you know speak articulately and uh you know it's not that it's a it's it's not it's not like it's a it's not a spelling bee or something it's not a it's not a final exam we don't want to make that mistake but i think um but i think you know bernie has a chance to make present himself as actually i can deliver more body blows to donald trump than joe biden will be able to do uh not given his record and also and this is you know you don't say this but you you show this but also um, given my greater vigor at this point in life and that I'm capable of sort of being the vessel for that anti-Trump vote in a way that's even more effective than, than Joe Biden. It's going to be a really hard case to make because I think there's such pressure to, to consolidate this gain right now from the media and from the party establishment who are going to sort of um, do everything to, to hold this uh, now that they've gotten, you know, to, 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 
sort of hold this lead for Biden now that they've gotten it. But Biden himself is going to be on the ballot now, and Biden himself is going to face some scrutiny, and we'll see how he deals with it. Great. Well, it's a great pleasure talking with you, Matt Carp. We've run out of time, but I want to thank you so much and definitely say well, let's do this again. Uh, Matt is well-known to Jacobin readers as a contributing editor. Take a look at his latest article, as I called it, Heart and Heartless World. Bernie Sanders can still win the nomination and the presidency. And in his other life, when he isn't being a new father, he's an associate professor of history at Princeton. And his latest book is this vast Southern Empire slaveholders at the helm of American foreign policy. Thanks so much for being with us today, Matt. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm Susie Wiseman, and we're going to continue our look at the significance and aftermath of South Carolina and Super Tuesday, asking basic questions about the disconnect between the enthusiasm and support for progressive policies and the Sanders and perhaps Warren, to a lesser degree, candidates, and the reality of people then turning around and voting for Biden and ask things like, was it fear motivated by the constant drum of the corporate media that Bernie's not electable, but Biden is? So we're going to be, I'm very happy to be examining this with Adolph Reed. And he's a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania and an organizer in the Debs Jones Douglas Institute's Medicare for All uh, South Carolina campaign. So we're going to talk a lot about that. And he has a new article, really excellent read on common dreams called South Carolina neoliberalism stranglehold and the mystique of the black vote that appeared on March 4th. And um, Adolf, first, very glad to be speaking to you. But maybe you could just, you know, tell us uh, what's your latest book that the you know pe- listeners may want to run out and get. Well, uh, I would love to, except uh, they can't run out and get it yet because they have to finish it first. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I read that when you retired, you did so because you have so many of them in your head, you just got to get them down. So I guess we can wait and look for them. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, like I, I was hoping, um, you know, by the end of this semester to finish the last chapter on a long-suffering book that, that began with a title referencing Obama mania, but actually the book has morphed a great deal now and it, and the title I think the press is going to w- work with is The Decline and Transformation of the Left in, in the U.S. You know, really since you know, since the end of World War II. And I'm trying to finish up the last substantive chapter now. And, uh, <laughs> Perfect. And we'll see when I can get to it. That's, <laughs> you know, and it really is apropos. And, of course, we've talked before even about that Obama mania and have a, you know, if right. a disagreement about it. But I think you proved more right than me. Um, so in any case, you've been interpreting um, what, you, what you've termed black t- politics and the black politics that in, uh, emerged in the wake of the great triumphs of the 1960s and the su- subsequent period of defeats adapt- and adaptations and transformations. You've also been an activist all of your life, I think. I remember back when you were campaigning for the Labor Party and then in the Sanders uh, campaign. And, and the black vote turned things around for Biden in South Carolina. And that's really the subject of your article. And it began the reversal that brought this stunning, you know, turnaround on Super Tuesday that certainly caught a lot of people by surprise.
surprise. It gave Biden the Super Tuesday victory, and blacks played a central part in enabling that to happen, not just in South Carolina before the Super Tuesday, but in Texas and and everywhere else. So I think, you know, I'm really pleased that I have you to help us interpret um, those developments. So let's just go first, Adolf, to South Carolina, which happened before. And there, as in much of the rest of the U.S., African-American voters as a group have the farthest left political views in the U.S. That's as a group uh, across the country. But you say in your article, and this is a quote, nationally, black voters are more likely than others to support single-payer health care system at 74 percent compared to 69 percent among Latinos and 44 percent among whites. And yet in the South Carolina primary, where they make up an estimated 56 percent of the electorate, they gave Biden what, 61 to 64 percent of the vote. So how do you explain that disparity? And maybe you could just, you know, lay that out for us. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things there. I mean, um, first of all, I wouldn't say, well, I think the official narrative uh, insofar as as, or or the mainstream narrative is that um, South Carolina led a stunning turnaround for Biden. Um, But the uh, I think the reality is that you know this this was a narrative that was well well established uh, you know, before the actual primary, right? That 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 when uh, the races when the campaign schedule turned south, Biden was going to you know, benefit from this thing called the black vote, <laughs> and that would alter his fortunes. So it wasn't it was stunning in the way that things are stunning in the mass media, right? I mean, uh, the commentators and other Democratic Party kingmakers, I guess, had called this reality into existence and then were shocked and then feigned, you know, shocked that it happened. But on the outcome in South Carolina, and I think it's true in some of the other southern primary states as well, there were a bunch of factors. I think you already mentioned key ones, Susie. I mean, the, you know, South Carolina, as well as a number of other states, a significant percentage, I don't have the number in my head, of voters said, said they'd made up their minds in the last week or last few days. Uh, and I think that the combination of the constant drumbeat of you know, Democratic elites' contentions that uh, Sanders' candidacy would be dangerous and that Biden was electable played part of a role or played some, some role there. You're really the best thing that's that's been uh, you written about the black vote was actually by Cedric mm-hmm. Johnson in of uh, New Jacobin uh, in a piece almost exactly four years ago called Fear and Pandering in the Palmetto State, which he wrote after he uh, wrote in the wake of 2016 um, South Carolina primary. And it's key, right, like to demystify this idea of a black vote, right? There's no single coherent movement of black voters who follow like any uh, particular, uh, I mean, discrete reason for casting their votes. I mean, black voters are as complicated as anybody else. And I think part of the problem here is a larger framework in which, um, you know, 30 to 40, depending on the way you want to count, years of convergence at the grand policy level between uh, Republicans and uh, Democrats has kind of reinforced and at least tacit understanding uh, you know, within the electorate, and this is not just true of blacks, it's not just true, true of South Carolina or of the South, you know, actually divorces voting and the stakes of casting ballots in, in a given um, election 
from the domain in which one would be inclined to express one's policy concerns, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so what goes into making the determination of how groups of people decide to vote is as likely as not to be driven probably more so, like in a lot of cases, to be driven by um, um, local or um, idiosyncratic factors like, uh, you know, um, net- networks of personal relations, like the institutions that actually m- mobilize voters, uh, you know, to go to the polls, um, personal connections, right? I, I mean, all the rest of that. So, uh, if I could, um, Adolf, yeah, there's sure. there's a couple of quotes from your article that I just like to, you know, you say because they really yeah. spell it out. One is that you say politics today, or at least electoral politics, has not been redefined as not the appropriate domain. Uh, for trying to pursue politics that address people's actual material concerns like health care, education, jobs, and wages or housing. And right. you argue there that um, very narrow politics was on display in South Carolina in 2016 and again in 2020. But then, you know, when you go on and you start to talk about what is black politics, which really, as you say, has been at the center of your analysis, uh, uh, and I think you've even given the framework uh, to uh, people like Cedric Johnson, who has done this so well in the um, article and in the book that you mm-hmm. mention, um, but that's developing this notion of uh, of uh, of black politics as a framework to understand black Americans' electoral behavior, their class and their political interests, and their politics, especially black urban uh, politics. And you put it in your Common Dreams article: black politics, in fact is an historically specific phenomenon. It's a label attached to the racialized black interest group politics that consolidated after the great victories of the 1960s. And then you say it's through a class politics that rests on a premise and one asserted with increasing intensity as class differences among black Americans become clear in political debate that all black Americans converge around a racial agenda defined arbitrarily by political elites. So, okay, and then you go on to the black political, uh, uh, um, sorry, class using mm-hmm. this, you know, uh, status of representing black people to accrue benefits for themselves. I'll get into that part later, but let's let's just go back and unpack some of those things that you said, first of all, about the way that these electoral politics are expressed. And I think it's it's you know it's very well put in your article that there is a disconnect, but you're trying to explain that disconnect in ways that we can understand, and then you know on this whole sort of analysis of what black politics is. Right, sure. Well, I mean, um, the South Carolina case stand, stands out, uh, perhaps to me because I've spent a lot of time there, but mm-hmm. but uh, but uh, but stands out also because of the centrality of a figure like James, James Clyburn, right, uh, the black congressman in, in the state. Um, when Clyburn announced his in- endorsement of uh, Joe Biden, um, he uh, I mean, actually said that, uh, that from his perspective, uh, you know, the race was between Biden and Medicare for all. <laughs> right? Wow. I mean, <laughs> So you can't be much blunter than 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 that, right? And so um, was that bold of him to say it that way, given that most you know people and and blacks in particular support Medicare for all? Well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't want to toot our own horn too much, but you know, between uh, I mean December 
And um, the primary, we actually had um, 10,000 South Carolinians, uh, and largely black, not mainly, uh, who signed pledge cards indicating that they did not want to vote for for candidates who did not support Medicare for all. And 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 I think it may be given Clyburn's own politics and his commitments. Uh, you know, not to, not the least of which is the million dollars that he took, took from the pharmaceutical industry between yeah. 2008 and and two, and 2018. Um, but also his uh, I mean commitments in the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. It may be that he's felt uh, enough um, of that presence of this mounting black, um, I mean, support in the state. I mean, we had like five, uh, you know, billboards across the state, like including one, uh, you know, just outside downtown Charleston that everybody coming in from the airport to the debate would, would have seen. Uh, you know, I'm a Medicare for all voter, right, in South Carolina. Uh, so, so it may be that that there's some direct connection there. But um, you know, some of your listeners will recall that in 2016, uh, Clyburn, um, uh, Rep- Representative John Lewis from Atlanta, former icon of the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and C- Cedric Richmond from from New Orleans, who was then then at least the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Uh, made very uh, powerful and uh, vitriolic, um, de- uh, I mean, denunciations of, uh, of 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 key elements of the Sanders program, like free free public higher education uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, single payer, et cetera, on the grounds that it's irresponsible to tell people that they should get things for free, right? So, I mean, this kind of speaks to. Um, uh, what I've said, and you've quoted, um, is the fundamental class character of this this black black ethnic interest group, group politics. It's really incredible, too, because, you know, anybody who watched Clyburn's endorsement, it was very, very powerful. And right. he said people were safe with Joe, in, implying right. that they're not safe with Bernie. But right. the other thing that I read and I did not hear um, that Clyburn said was to tell Joe to pivot from policy to feeling to the heart, and uh, and, wow. and yeah, and it seems to me that that's really the nitty gritty of it because it's an incredibly difficult balancing act to tell um, African Americans who are, as you know, we all know, the most radicalized sector in the society consistently, at least on policy, um, but then to back someone who attacks those policies because they're safe with that. And I still think that that's difficult for a lot of people to understand. You understand it very well. So let's hear from you. Well, I mean, I don't know. Well, um, I mean, I've seen it a lot, right? So, so I mean, that's got a lot to do with it. But, but, but I do think that a key here is the degree to which... Um, and mind you, look, I mean, this is like um, by the mid-1970s, the, the effects of the Voting Rights Act in uh, mobilizing um, black, black voters, but also in providing you know, an institutional base for consolidation of, of a political class uh, was already so, so well advanced that by the 80s, like into the 90s, certainly under the Clintons, and even more so, frankly, under Obama, um, the electoral domain simply uh, was no longer one uh, to which p- 
people were um, accustomed to uh, addressing them, the, um, them themselves for pursuit of policies that could actually change people or improve working people's lives on a large scale, right? Um, uh, so, I mean, for instance, at one of the meetings that we had, uh, I mean, it was a great meeting like in Orangeburg, uh, one, well, one of the people who we were talking to asked, so is, is the Medicare for All going to be on the ballot so we can vote for it, <laughs> or will we have to vote for politicians who, who, uh, 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 who are in favor of it? Wow. And, like, that was the question, and it kind of speaks to how people are accustomed to seeing what what you vote for and or i mean the the scope of the issues that that uh, that um drive electoral action that's pretty incredible um so one of the things let's let's just go back a little bit because i I still find this, you know, I think it's difficult to understand in some way because there's right. one aspect of it that is that, you know, the Democratic leadership um, and, and the Congressional Black Caucus um, are, who are so tied into the Democratic, you know, agenda right. um, and, and actually are, are successful in undemocratically forcing, essentially, you know, their... Uh, black Americans to go along with them, even though in this question that you just, you know, talked about where someone said, can we vote for Medicare for all or do we have to vote for the person who represents it? That's pretty concrete. And mm-hmm. so um, you go in your article and uh, in your account of black politics to talk about um, race reductionism, the interpretation of politics in terms of race instead of class. And you say black Democrats are as committed to race reductionism as are white Republicans. And the result is that the black punditry and leading black politicians are systematically anti Bernie Sanders. So this is pretty powerful as well, and I think it speaks to the question that was brought up in this meeting, and I'd like you to lay it out a little bit, you know, more for our listeners. Right. Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting in this regard. In, in uh, the summer of 2008, <clears throat> uh, Matt Bai, um, in, mm-hmm. in, in an otherwise um, pretty insipid article in the New York Times magazine uh, called Is 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 Obama the end of black politics? Um, dropped one nugget that he didn't bother to explore, but he posited that in um, uh, the first cohorts of of black politicians after the Voting Rights Act were more inclined to see themselves as re- representatives from the black community to the Democratic Party. Uh, I think he probably overstates that mm-hmm. but but then that the uh that um you know the new cohorts by which he he, he had met obama and and cory booker and the like uh were more likely to see themselves as emissaries to the black community and of course he didn't say say from whom but it's from uh from um you know the neoliberal the democratic party Leadership, right? So, so a lot of what uh, constitutes, well, I mean, the role that those people play is trying to establish, you know, the limits of of a reasonable racial political um, aspiration 
for for their black constituents. Um, and we've seen that from other institutions as well. So from that perspective, uh, I mean, insofar as these people are um, incorporated into, like, the governing structures of the party, um, you know, their function is, to put it a little bluntly, um, you know, to mobilize voters on on behalf of mainstream party agendas and to make sure that those voters don't, don't get off the reservation, basically. Yeah. Right. One of the, let's go back for a minute, you know, to mm-hmm. uh, well, to the black electorate because uh, that gave this vote for, to Biden. And, you know, we've just been going on describing what uh, you and Cedric Johnson do in terms of black voters supporting the black leadership in South Carolina. But um, but I want to push it a little bit further. And a framework could be that, um, that you might compare South Carolina with the greater success of Sanders winning the support of Latinos in places like California and Nevada. So we saw a quarter. So oh, I'm okay, waiting. I'm, I'm just waiting for Teddy to give me a signal that you can. And the Culinary Workers Union and the trade unions there more generally, def- um, you know, were not for Sanders. Uh, and the and at their base, they defied the leadership, uh, right. Right? right? And and right. Um, of of the culinary union, which is incredibly powerful and yep. strongly supported Sanders instead. And in California, we learned um, from the journalist Gustavo Ariano that there was an extraordinary excitement about Bernie throughout the Latino community, even despite the fact that the Latino political leadership in California and Sacramento nearly unanimously refused to support. Sanders. And of course, these the states that I've just mentioned, California especially, is a, is a, is a Democratic state. Nevada is a recent uh, Democratic state, went from purple to blue. South Carolina is more conservative and Republican. But do these contrasts help pose the problem of the black vote in South Carolina for Biden? I mean, can you, can you see anything there? Uh, yes, I think that absolutely is an important consideration. And this is another crucial point that Cedric Johnson made that, you know, for all the talk, and this really began in, uh, you know, 2008, and then, or rather in a retrospective account of what happened in 2008, and worked to the advantage of the Clintonites in 2016. But this notion that um, South Carolina is crucial because it's the first state with a largely black Democratic electorate, and somehow winning South Carolina shows one's ability to appeal to black voters is problematic in a couple of senses. One is that uh, because South Carolina is such um, a deeply conservative state, in the first place, it's a state that no Democratic nominee is going to win in November. And that was also true of some, if not all, of the southern states in the Super Tuesday primaries where Biden ran, ran strongest and especially because of the character of South Carolina politics, black voters are more accustomed to voting in a defensive way, right, than mm-hmm. uh, in being able to sort of uh, you know, stretch out and articulate what the internal policy um, differences or I mean, debate, right? Uh, and that's another way that the, that the so-called black vote thing works, right? If one perceives you know, black voters as a beleaguered minority in the state overall, then it's more likely, candidates, I guess, are more likely to have success in proposing what 
are, in effect, uh, I mean, defensive bases for voting. And that would certainly fit with Biden is more electable. He's a safer bet than, say, in some other states, right? Uh, and I mean, that's, certainly, uh, that's certainly the case uh, regarding places like in Nevada and, and uh, California. So I think that's another facet of the mix here. One thing I wanted to ask you out of that is mm-hmm. whether or not this is also age-related or geographically related, because as we see in the Sanders coalition, you know, he has the vote of people up to, I don't know, 40 or so, uh, right. maybe slightly younger than that. And it's black, brown, Latino, it's everything. Um, and right. people there are voting their hearts for policies that they not just hunger for, but need for their survival and right. and putting aside or don't follow the discipline, let's say, of the Democratic leadership or it, or the African-American or Latino caucuses of that mm-hmm. leadership. And so um, and, and is how do you explain that that didn't happen in South Carolina or did it to a certain extent at the younger vote? I think it did. Uh, well, I mean, to some extent, with the younger vote, of course, it's leavened by the problem that y- younger voters tend not to turn out, right? I mean, yeah. so, so it's kind of um, a double-edged sword. I mean, as a rule, you know, I'm not all that crazy about age-graded understandings of mm-hmm. you know, how people vote even, really, I mean, of their, uh, their political inclinations. I mean, see, a part of the problem is the inevitable tension and i mean the sanders campaign has done this extraordinarily well since 2015 really but of uh trying to combine an electoral uh strategy with a movement building strategy mm-hmm. right because they operate off fundamentally different if not antagonistic logics in places like i mean south carolina there was there hasn't been any real base for the movement building work. I want to ask you one thing just before you go into sure. that, because I want to end with the movement stuff, but just it occurred to me as we're thinking of places like South Carolina where you explain really clearly, Adolf Reed, the idea of you're safer with the establishment, right? right. And that's that, and people voting defensively because, you know, they've been conditioned to over a very long period of, of experiences. But in your article, you also explained that that the black uh, leadership of the Congressional Caucus are doing this also to protect their own material interests. And as I was reading that, I thought, well, this is just like the trade union bureaucracy. <laughs> you know, and, and I wondered... Oh, yeah, one could say that, although <laughs> I tend not to do that all that much, but yeah. Okay, right. that's that's really what I wanted to hear, because I just wonder, you know, but you so rarely hear that kind of analysis that ties, you know, the sort of politics that are put forward to the class interests. And even right. in the case where the class interest is not so obvious in being people who are, you know, in what is considered a progressive caucus of a party or, let's say, in a trade union that's defending, supposedly defending workers' interests, but, you know, let's say would not go out of the confines of a con contract or or other things. I don't really want to get into it. But I th- I think that the analogy works slightly and I wanted to run it by you. But then that also ties into what you were just starting to talk about and that's really how I want us to end this is to talk about the difference with Sanders who who understands and says constantly that it's going to be a movement that brings, you know, these politics to power. It's, you know, us, not me sort of thing. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, especially since you're on the ground um, campaigning for Medicare for all today in Louisiana, but also elsewhere. Sure. I mean, mean, that's the thing. And I mean, I was like talking to a couple of friends 
I mean, last night, you know, I'm I'm an old guy. I've been at this for a long time, and this does seem like the best moment that we've had in my lifetime. Certainly, in my adult, my fully formed adult I mean, lifetime, mm-hmm. um, to lay a real foundation among working class people for a different agenda and a different way of think, thinking about politics. And if I might sort of jump up into the clouds for a second, I mean, as we look around the world at this point, it's looking more and more like neoliberalism may have exhausted <clears throat> its talent for disorganizing the working class, which is the good news in one sense, as we've seen with uh, the phenomena like uh, you know the pink tide in Latin America and the movement that Sanders' work uh, you know, began to kick off, right, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's certainly what's created the space for us to do, you know, the kind of grassroots work that we are do- doing in South Carolina with, with the support of the South Carolina AFL-CIO, by the way. I mean, it's, it, um, it's a key node in the Medicare for All alliance there. Wow. Um, but, of course, the flip flip side of that is... You know, the other side of the coin, as we've also seen in uh, reactions against uh, you know, the pink tide states, is that uh, the alternative is as likely as not to be some kind of reorganization of the neoliberal order on more openly reactionary and authoritarian grounds. And, you know, like the domestic face of that is obviously Trump. But, I mean, even when you see some of the so-called centrist Dems uh, sort of raising the specter of bipartisan national government. I mean, I sometimes think of it as, you know, the government of national salvation or national re- reconciliation, right, that the fascists so often hide behind. I, I mean, that just adds to, you know, the significance and the intensity of the moment. And, and from, from that perspective, right, I mean, I think, um, I think the corporate and the democratic establishment have made clear that uh, they're more concerned about the left than than they are about the prospect of a second Trump term, which fits with what's gone gone on, like in other um, uh, uh, states, both in Europe uh, and in Latin America as well. And it's um, it's often cheap and easy to say that we, that we're in a fight of our lives, but I think at this point we actually well may be, and we owe that on the positive side to the work that this broad movement that the Sanders campaign has you know, helped to produce and uh, you know, to lay the foundation for, but it's like a very fraught and dangerous moment. I want to thank you so much for that. You couldn't have said it more clearly, Adolf Reed, and I think, you know, even I was saying to my students yesterday and in other conversations that this was not going to be easy and we should essentially be really proud, I guess, or happy as you are, that it's come this far and caught hold as as much as it has. And it's really a signal when you see, you know, that clearly um, the uh, Democratic establishment, but also parties, similar sorts of mainstream neoliberal and stressing the liberal part of the neoliberal, you know, elements across the globe see the fight that the left is more dangerous than the right. And that is, you know, what makes this such an important moment. Um, And as you say, makes this so urgent. 
Uh, I want to, and it also puts the United States in a, a a place we never thought, but we would sort of be in the vanguard of the left in a way with this Sanders movement that's giving hope to people in Europe and elsewhere where their own politicians are not uh, limping right. along or, or helping to uh, capture the mood of the moment with the movements that are, you know, still emerging. But yep. um, we've run out of time, and I want to thank you so much and, and, and to tell the listeners to read your terrific article, South Carolina Neoliberalism's Stranglehold and the Mystique of the Black Vote in um, Common Dreams that appeared Wednesday, March 4th, uh, and to continue reading your work, and, and we'll look forward to all of your insights, Adolf Reed. Oh, well, thank you so much, Susie, and uh, you know, thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too, and I uh, should just say that um, you are Professor Emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania, the organizer in the Debs Jones Douglas Institute's Medicare for All South Carolina campaign. Thanks, Adolf. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sumkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.